You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Thank you, thank you. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So good to see so many of you here today, uh, your friends and family here. And um, wasn't it such a good time together yesterday at the Fall Family Festival? So good. Fortunately, Ron wasn't there to cheat his way into winning, uh, but <laughs> no, we love Ron and Essie, but um, we, uh, number three, I don't know who number three was, but uh, I'm probably going to go to your house, so <laughs> that was really, really good, but it was a really, really special time. Um, we really enjoyed one another's company, uh, and just to echo really what Pastor said a little while ago, can we give it up for the worship team? I mean, it was an amazing, amazing worship today. I, um, I'm always so blessed by them because, like us, they go through things, right? They just go through things, and um, they come in here week after week, and they put themselves aside, and they usher us into the presence of the Lord. And there's just something that needs to be said about that. And really, you know, that's something that all of us do in some capacity here when we serve We come in here sometimes, we put ourselves aside, and we just minister as unto the Lord, but to the benefit of those that uh, are with us shoulder to shoulder, right? Amen. All right, well, how many of you are excited to go to God's Word this morning? Amen. You know, the Lord has been preaching His sermon. I say His sermon because these are His words. He's been preaching His sermon all morning. We started in the back, uh, and uh, Cheryl started talking about the power of, the God, of, of God's Word, and you're going to hear me refer to that in a second, but um, every bit of what I'm going to be talking about today was mentioned as we went around the room, and of course, nobody had my notes. I know they were here. They were safe, and uh, yet the Lord was just echoing everything that He has given me so as to say that it was confirmation that this is what the Lord had for us today. Amen? I've been in a season where God has been giving me a passion for his word. This is why I say what I say to you. Um, How many of you know of the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Right? Well, a simple definition of that would be that we become so familiar with something that we no longer appreciate it sort of take it for granted. And that happens a lot. The fact of the matter is that, and I've been guilty of this, we become so familiar with Bible stories, with scripture, that even the messages associated with them, sometimes we tune them out. And the biggest problem with that is that we potentially miss what God has for us. I love what Chris Green said the last time he was here. He said, God doesn't repeat himself. He said, God doesn't repeat himself. Let me tell you what the author of uh, Hebrews says. He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The fact of the matter is that when we look at the word of God, we say these are static words. 
But we can't lose sight of the fact that although these are static words, they're static words with dynamic meaning. If the word is to be living and active in our hearts and in our lives, then we have to activate it. And it has to mean that much to us. Amen? And so today I want to challenge us to allow the word of God to speak to us anew. To allow the word of God to speak to us afresh. And the fact of the matter is that if we had to assume a posture, I want us to assume the posture of Mary, sitting at the feet of the Lord, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and learning from him. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, we started out with a lectionary reading, and a pastor had a joke about that, but I won't tell it. Uh, (laughs) I love our pastor. (laughs) Well, he had a joke about it, but an interesting story about uh, today's lectionary reading. A couple weeks ago, I get a call from Pastor, and he says, I need to talk to you about October 9th. And uh, a couple months before that, he had spoken to me, of course, about sharing here and, uh, and just filling in for him and allowing him to take a, a season of rest or a moment of rest. And so, of course, I obliged. I was more than happy to step in and allow the Lord to, to, to use me in that capacity. And uh, so when he reached out, I had no idea really what he wanted to talk about. For all I knew, he wanted to uh, sort of maybe tell me that he didn't need me to speak on October 9th. Maybe he just wanted to go over some particulars. Um, But when we finally connected, he said to me, I want to challenge you. And I said, okay. He said, I want you to pray about incorporating the lectionary into your message. So, silently, I begin to panic. Because even though we don't say it out loud, the truth of the matter is that in some way, shape, form, or fashion, we're all control freaks. We don't like when people take us out of our comfort zone. And so, I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you've given me a message, and now here comes my lovely pastor, and he wants me to incorporate this message, or incorporate the lectionary into the message. And so we, we start talking about some of the lectionary selections, and uh, I tell him a little bit about what I'm talking about uh, today, and he, he, starts, uh, he starts telling me about one of the lectionary readings in there. And of course, I'm like, oh yeah, Pastor, that sounds great, that sounds good. Again, all the while, panic. And uh, we ended the conversation basically with him saying, just go home, pray about it, read through the selections, and let the Lord speak to you. That day, it just so happens, I was going to visit my mom, and uh, my mom is a bit of a character. We're, we're sitting there, we're talking, and uh, I'm telling her about my dilemma, and uh, this is a good dilemma, by the way, <laughs> but I'm telling her about my dilemma, and she says to me, well, you know, what are some of your options? And so I tell her, you know, this one, this one, this one, this one. I get to Psalm 66, and my mom has, you know, I've been practicing my sermon pretty much on my mom and my family. My wife can probably come up here and preach it for me. <laughs> but the reality is that my mom says, there's something in Psalm 66 that you need to, that you need to look at. And so um, I went and I, 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 I read it there. But when I went back home and I read it, I said, man, this is the perfect prelude to what we're going to be talking about today. And so I reached out to Pastor and he was like, go for it. And so this morning we read Psalm 66, um, 
excellent psalm read by an excellent voice. <laughs> Praise God for Sheena. Um, but Psalm 66 is a celebratory psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. As a song, this psalm would have been equivalent to the songs we sing every Sunday, singing about what Jesus has done in our lives. The psalmist in this particular psalm is celebrating what God has done not only in his life, but in the life of his forefathers. The psalm begins, as Sheena read this morning, with a call to praise. And then by verse 5, we are introduced to this profound statement, look what the Lord has done. And I'm sorry, but I got to do this. Because the next words are not what could have been, he healed my body, he touched my mind, he saved me, and it was just in time. I'm going to praise his name. Each day he's just the same. Come on and praise him. Look what the Lord has done. Come on, somebody give him praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sorry, Steph, I didn't mean to steal your job. <laughs> but the reality is that in verse 6, we're introduced, or rather the psalmist reminds us that God turned the sea into dry land. And what the psalmist is alluding to is a time when a man by the name of Moses was called up to lead God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, and into the promised land. And this was a promised land that was promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before the people of God could take possession of the promised land, they first had to cross through the wilderness. And for 40 years, they did just that. And so today we want to focus on one particular story in their long wilderness wandering journey. And if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Numbers 21. We're going to be reading uh, beginning at verse 4 and through verse 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he looked at the bronze serpent and lived. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again for your word this morning. 
Father, we pray that you would open our ears, you would open our hearts, Lord God, that your word would fall on fertile soil this morning. And we just thank you, Lord God, with great expectation for what you have for us today. For it's in your precious name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay. Sorry, and I made sure I brought my water this time. Uh, because last time, remember, I was parched. It was only one of my mishaps. The other was that I was charged with copyright infringement, apparently. And I caused a portion of the service to disappear. Like that piece of paper. I'm going to get it together here one day. <laughs> All right. So as we dive in this morning, let us remember that... Um, well, you know what? Actually, I think that piece of paper, I'm going to need it. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. All right. Praise the Lord, right? All right. So as we mentioned earlier, when we were talking about Psalm 66, let us remember that before the people of God could enter the promised land, the scriptures tell us they first had to go through the wilderness. And what I believe was a time of testing and preparation for entering the promised land. And so as we consider this physical wilderness experience that we read about, I want us to also consider the spiritual implications associated with a wilderness experience or season. A la pastor's made-up word, seasonalism. But I found this great resource online, actually, that I want to share with you um, because it would do a lot better than me sitting up here and sort of ad-libbing. Um, the question was, and the author answers, what does it mean to have a wilderness experience? And the author says, a wilderness experience is usually thought of as a tough time in which a believer endures discomfort and trials. The pleasant things of life are unable to be enjoyed, or they may be absent altogether. And one feels a lack of encouragement. Hold on to that word, encouragement. And think of the opposite, rather. A wilderness experience is often a time of intensified temptation and spiritual attack. It can involve a spiritual, financial, or emotional drought. And this is one of the most important pieces here. Having a wilderness experience is not necessarily a sign that a believer is sinning. Rather, it is a time of God-ordained testing. A wilderness experience is often linked to a mountaintop experience. That is, the struggle follows success of some kind. The period of trial comes on the heels of a period of accomplishment or achievement. And then the author goes through some, some biblical examples, but I won't read all of them. Uh, but he closes with something really good. He says, the wilderness is an unpleasant place, fleshly speaking. We naturally want prosperity, health, and easygoing. And I love this. But the same God who created the garden also created the wilderness. There will be times of trial and pressure. Our faith will be tested, but the God of grace will meet us even 
in the wilderness. Praise the Lord. Praise his name. And so as we just read, wilderness experiences are often linked to mountaintop experiences. And as we'll see here in a moment, the people of God knew a thing or two about mountaintop experiences. Recall that in today's lectionary reading that the psalmist refers to a parting of the waters. But let's not forget the magnitude of the miracle associated with the parting of the waters. The scriptures tell us that enduring, that after enduring the ten plagues, Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. But then the scriptures tell us something interesting. They say that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, that he might show himself mighty. And so Pharaoh pursues the Israelites and facing insurmountable odds of a raging army behind them and a massive body of water before them. God does the unthinkable and he parts the waters, allowing them to pass through. Unfortunately, we can't say the same for the Egyptians, but we do know that God got the glory that day. I would also add that even though these people were in the wilderness, they didn't lack direction. In addition to Moses leading them, the scriptures tell us that they were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this pillar of fire was not only directing their path, but provided a constant reminder of God's presence. And if that wasn't enough, it says that God was providing fresh bread from heaven every morning for this people that did not have a food source. And yet the scriptures tell us that the people of God rebelled. But this is the truth. The truth is that, like them, we all have a way of forgetting yesterday's blessings, especially when we become immersed in today's burdens. And so Moses recorded that they became very discouraged, and they took it out on Moses, and he took it out on God himself. And unfortunately, and this is the truth, discouragement can have devastating effects on our own promised land journey. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that these things happened as an example, but they were recorded for our instruction. So I believe that Moses wanted us to see that although discouragement can have its reasons, it can also have its results. But even greater, there's always a remedy, God's remedy. And so let us begin this morning with our first point, being that there's a reason for discouragement. The Israelites' discouragement boiled down to two things. 
They didn't like the way that they were being led, and they didn't like the way that they were being fed. Remember that although Moses and Aaron were physically leading the people, it was God through Moses that led them into the wilderness in preparation for entering the promised land. But the people couldn't see past their circumstance. And showing their disapproval with God and Moses, they rebelled against his leadership. And it tells us that they complained and they murmured. But they didn't stop there. Remember that fresh bread, that fresh manna that fell from heaven every day? Instead of thanking God for that awesome provision, they instead said, we loathe this worthless bread. Now hear this. Little did they know that the bread that they rejected was a representation of the sustaining life that we can have in Jesus the bread of life. And so the scriptures tell us that God became highly displeased. You know, while we're on the topic of reasons, the scriptures tell us that they didn't like the way that they were being led and they didn't like the way that they were being fed. And I was, as I was preparing for this, because quite some time to prepare for it, um, I remember listening to this pastor, and he's just going to remain unnamed for now, Um, but I was listening to this very famous pastor. And uh, this pastor gets a bad rap sometimes, honestly. Uh, People uh, say he's a motivational speaker, he's more of a just try to cheer you up uh, preacher, doesn't preach enough about the blood. But he has an excellent radio station. And so... I was driving uh, one day, and and I came across his station, and I was listening to one of his sermons, and uh, he was preaching about encouragement, and I remember saying, wow, this is a great message. Maybe Joel, oh, sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't say that, did I? (laughs) Hopefully we don't get cut off again, Ian. I said, maybe he's not bad after all. This is great. I actually put what he was uh, preaching about into practice, and I reached out to a couple of guys that were going through some things or just guys that were on my heart, on my mind, and just because of the busyness of life, I never got around to, to, to reaching out. And so I reached out to them, and, um, and it was all good. And for maybe a week or so, I left them on. And... Uh, After a while, I started noticing something. There was a recurring theme with all of the messages. You see, far too many times he kept saying, you and your, you and your, you and your. And I kept thinking to myself, what's wrong with this message? Because it was uplifting on the one hand, but there was too much emphasis being put on me. And so I started saying to myself, it's not about me. It's about him. It's not about me. It's about him. And in this one particular sermon, he's talking about, and it almost seemed like a name and claim it kind of thing, but he wasn't, it wasn't directly that. He says, and if God told you that you're going to go to this college or this particular college, go buy the shirt, put it on the wall, and keep declaring 
that God is going to bring you into that college or he's going to bring you into that season. And I was like, well, there we got a problem. Because here's the thing. If that person gets into that college, he can affirm that message. But what happens when that person doesn't get into the college? You see, God may have spoken something into your life, but what Joel is not telling you is that it's not my will, but your will. You see, you might have told me I'm going to be something, I'm going to do something, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's not my will, but your will. And that was the thing that was missing. And so um, I wouldn't discourage anybody from, from listening to his messages. I think they're, I think they're overall fine, of, but the reality was that that's me personally, that was sort of grieving to me because I believe that if we don't guard our hearts, even in the things that we consume, we can open ourselves up to seasons of discouragement. The discouragement doesn't always come packaged in a big yellow box. Sometimes the discouragement comes in things that we entertain. And so that's just something extra. All right, you're welcome. (laughs) Okay, now this brings us to our next point. Because you talked about that there was a reason, and now this brings us to our point of there being a result. And this is a key point. Discouragement left to fester can have devastating effects. In the story, we see that as a result of the people's rebellion against God's leadership and provision, God sends fiery serpents. Something interesting about these fiery serpents. I thought it was fiery for emphasis, but as I was doing my, uh, my study on this, it was believed that it was either that they were of like a light color or that their sting, the sting of their bite was so painful that you felt like your entire body was on fire. And so that, hold on to that because that's, that's a key point here. And the scriptures tell us that the serpents bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now before we all start running out of here thinking that God is going to kill us, let me clarify some things. First and foremost, remember that Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those that he loves. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday in the car, and she actually encouraged me to incorporate this part. But as a parent, I can tell you that when my wife and I discipline our children, it's first and foremost not only because we love them, but but because we want what's best for them. And like any other loving parent, we want them to understand right from wrong. And so you might be asking yourself in today's text, but if God loved them, then why did he kill them? To which I will simply reply, who says that God killed them? I don't see that written here anywhere. Nowhere in the story does it say that God killed them. The rebellion displayed by the Israelites was tantamount to sin. Remember that Paul tells us in Romans 6, 
that the wages of sin are death. The wages of sin are death. James, uh, who centuries later would become the head of the Jerusalem church, tells us, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so today I submit to you that it was not God who killed them, but the consequence of their sin. By the way, we tend to think of sin, or we tend to think of death, pardon me, in its most extreme context. But the fact of the matter is this. How many marriages, relationships, and careers have been destroyed by poor choices and consequences to sin. This past summer, I was um, asked to share at a men's barbecue, and I uh, just had to prepare a nugget, nothing too serious. But I had come across this saying that said, respect is earned in drops, but it's lost in buckets. Lost in buckets. One poor choice can be tantamount to a year of having to, years of having to recover. Sit on that one for a moment. So we've gone through the reason, we've gone through the result in this story. But praise the Lord, there's a remedy. Moses records that in a moment of repentance, the people came to Moses acknowledging their sin, saying, we have sinned against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents. And Moses responds admirably. Last week, we were, uh, pastor preached on mustard seed faith. I wasn't up here. We were downstairs teaching the same lesson to the children. And uh, by the way, the children are amazing. They come up with stuff. Oh, yeah, give it up for the kids, man. I tell you, my kids teach me so much about myself. But they, they were downstairs, and the stuff that they would come up with, my wife prepared everything. All I had to do was sit there. But... Uh, they, they came up with these brainstorm words that had me amazed. Because when she said faith, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. And they would come up with this stuff, believe, believer. And I was like, wow, these kids are amazing. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Oh, going back, mustard seed faith. Jesus is responding in that story. He's responding to something that the disciples Actually, he's responding to the disciples' response to something that he's sharing. Jesus is telling them about repentance. He's teaching them about repentance and forgiveness, rather. And the scriptures tell us that, and something actually interesting, because we always have to know the culture of the people that are talking in the story. In Judaism, it was thought to be admirable 
to forgive someone three times. And Jesus, in this story, is telling them that they must forgive seven times in a day. And their response to Jesus was, give us more faith. It seemed like a little bit too much for them. They had an honest response. And when Moses is confronted with these people, mind you, in Numbers 21, we're reading about the story of the bronze serpent. But in Numbers 20, Moses finds out that he's not going into the promised land. And it was ultimately Moses' fault as to why he wasn't going into the promised land. But Moses could have also blamed it on the people because it was the people that were frustrating him. It was the people that were threatening to stone him. It was the people that were cursing his leadership and ultimately God's leadership. And even though Moses, and if we're being honest, maybe some of us would have responded with, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Don't come praying. No, I'm not praying for you. Don't come here now. Where were you when I needed you? Doesn't tell us that he did that. Moses being a type of Christ in this story, goes before the Lord and he prays for them. And so Moses prays to the Lord, but instead of removing the serpent, God tells Moses, he gives him this strange command. Make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole that whoever gazes on it may be healed. Now, I think it's interesting that God doesn't remove the serpents and therefore eliminate the consequences of the bite. He instead provides a remedy that when looked upon by faith will provide healing. And so God's remedy was sure, it was sufficient, and it was sustaining. It was sure because it was God's remedy. God didn't say, here's a way to be cured. He revealed it was the only way to be cured. It was sufficient because it didn't matter how many times you were bitten or where you were bitten. God's remedy was sufficient for healing. It was sustaining because it never failed. You don't see that recorded anywhere in the scriptures. That certain people looked and it failed them and they died anyway. It says they would look and they would be healed. And so what does this have to do with us? Remember that when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, encounters the two men on the road to Emmaus, he says to them, That beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he was going to reveal all the things about himself. 1,500 years when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he refers to this same story. And he says to Nicodemus,
And he says to Nick, He says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so it was. Jesus was set upon a cross that whoever looked to him would live and live eternally. This is not in my notes, but Sister Kathy uh, blessed me with a book recently, and it talks about forever, it talks about eternity. Earlier we were talking about the here and the now and how we get caught up in nowism. But this book aims to reclaim for us, this book aims to create awareness in us that we were meant to spend eternity with God. And so when we read that word eternal there, it needs to mean something to us. This life is but a vapor. Paul, if I recall correctly, put it this way. He said, I feel sorry for you if you think that this life is all that there is. But I have some good news for us this morning. This remedy in this story was a response to the result of the Israelites' discouragement, to their rebellion. But in Jesus, we have a better remedy. And we can look to him not as a result, but in spite of the discouragement. Now, the fact is that we could honestly close there. Given everything that the Lord has been revealing to us today, given everything that we've been seeing from the last couple of Sundays being very heavy in this room to today being a sense of jubilation to the Lord affirming words, to the Lord speaking words, to awesome worship, we could stop there. But I want us to consider one more wilderness story. Remember that we began today's message with a call to recognize the power of God's word. In the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are also called the synoptic gospels, we learn that Jesus, after being baptized in the river Jordan, immediately after hearing the voice of God, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. The scriptures tell us that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he became hungry. And then it says that the tempter came. Now, I imagine that he was trying to get into the ear of Jesus throughout the 40 days and the 40 nights. But it's only in this particular part of the story when it says that he became hungry that the tempter reveals himself in the story. And so he tries to appeal to Jesus' hunger. And, if he says to, and then he says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
And then Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, says to him, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But he doesn't stop there. He then takes Jesus to the top of the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, quoting and misinterpreting Psalm 90, which was actually a psalm that we read as one of our lectionaries recently. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on a stone. And Jesus, once again, quoting Deuteronomy, responds, again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so the devil, making one last ditch effort, brings him up to the mountaintop and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And their glory. And offers him all of them if he would just fall down and worship him. And again, quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. By the way, this, 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 uh, that last saying that Jesus says there reminds me of something that we see in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. And so, aside to the parallels of the story that we read here with Jesus, it's the story today. Jesus shows us that the power of his word is our defense against the enemy. When we're in seasons of discouragement, when we're in wilderness wandering seasons, this needs to be the thing that we rely on. This needs to be the thing that we seek. This. Before George comes up uh, to lead us in the elements, I want to share one more thing because... Last week, we were talking about a bearing up of each other's burdens. And you might not be in a season of discouragement. You may not be in a season of wilderness wandering. But this message still speaks to you, and I'm going to tell you why. Because just as I said last time, if we are to bear one another's burden up, then the fact is that when you're not in that season, then you are in the season of bearing up. You are in the season of encouraging. You are in the season of uplifting. And we need to be very mindful, aware, and present of that. Last week, George said that God is bringing us into a season of awareness. When we walk into this place and someone doesn't seem kind and they don't greet us, Instead of judging them, pray and say, Lord, what's going on in that person's life? God, what can I do to maybe encourage that person? 
when we see people down and out, instead of saying, I'm just going to give that person their space, invade their space, lift them up. Because I can tell you right now, I've been walking with the Lord now for about 20 years, and my wife will tell you, if there weren't people that lifted me up when I was falling, I wouldn't be here. I would not be here. It's by the grace of God and by the people that he has placed shoulder to shoulder with me that I stand here before you. And you've heard the testimonies. You've heard of the mountaintop experiences. You've heard of the miracles that he's done. But it's only by his grace that I stand here, that you stand here this morning. And so let us consider that this morning. That if we're not in the season of burden, we're not in the season of wilderness experience, then let us shoulder each other's burden. But if you are in the season of burden, and you are in the season of wilderness wandering, lean on Jesus. It's like the song that Maverick City sings. It says, you are more than enough. Jesus, you are more than enough. And so if you believe that today, give it up for the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.